Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Simplify, play, choose joy. How does that sound to you? In today's episode, we have, I know I say every time we have a special episode, and it's true, but this one is really, really special, and I'm going to tell you why. I got to sit down with Dr. Michelle Seeger, a psychologist. She works at the University of Michigan. I'll tell you about her bio in a moment. She's got a lot of really incredible experiences in the research field, and she's just done really meaningful work and she's someone that I deeply admire and I've followed her work for a long time and the that admiration was really only amplified after our conversation and it was actually a reminder to me that we're all human and um, she talked about why she wrote some of the incredible books that she has written No Sweat being one that came out in 2015 that um, is actually how I found her and how I found her work because that book talks a lot about self-determination theory which we love talking about on this podcast and how it applies to exercise and how many of the ways that we've traditionally thought about exercise undermine people doing exercise so the examples include that it has to be 10 minute bouts of exercise to count, quote unquote, and you have to breathe hard and sweat. And her book, you know, her courage and willingness to share these different messages backed by research ended up changing some of the national recommendations for exercise. So it's just a really special conversation and a reminder of why it's so important to have courage to speak out when you see things that could be improved. And so I cannot wait to to tell you all about it. So let me tell you what to expect in this interview. I actually just went on a walk and I listened to it and it just made me, made my heart happy. And so we talk about what prompted Michelle to get into doing this work. She takes us back to a story from a pivotal moment among a group of women, cancer survivors back in 94. So you're going to want to hear that story. She talks about when she first started applying self-determination theory to understanding eating and exercise habits. She talks about why she wrote her best-selling book, no sweat and also why she wrote her brand new book coming out this very week called the joy choice so that's where the simplify play choose joy comes from and i really think it's a powerful tool and and i really as you're listening through this i want you to really be thinking about how you can apply it in your life so we, she goes over in the book and in this interview, we talk about the existing research on habit change and how it's a lot of times focused on developing automatic habits, setting things on autopilot, and why this may not always apply to eating behavior specifically, but also may not always apply to people with 
not very predictable lives. And she also talks about, you know, the role of personality and she talks about being a habiter versus an unhabiter and and how to know which one you are. So you're going to want to check that out. And um, she talks about a science-based decision support strategy. I think the pivotal piece that you're going to get out of this interview is that we need to focus on the decision moment. The moment of decision is really important for doing anything we want to do and supporting ourselves in that moment. And that's where she has some frameworks that she goes in depth in the book. So you're going to want to get that. But we start to give you some sneak peek into it in this interview. And we talk about what it means to make the perfect, imperfect choice and how that can apply to you. So make sure you listen in to hear about our example, Kara, who was in the habit of skipping lunch and how she used this framework to make that perfect, imperfect choice. And really it was interesting today as I was listening back to our interview and and preparing to just do this little intro that I'm doing here, I had this very strong sort of visual image of what it means to have the joy choice. And we, you'll hear us talking about making space for the complexities of thought, emotion, and naming it. As uh, Dr. Seeger says multiple times, there's a really important science to naming what's going on because otherwise it just continues to hold power over us and impact us in ways that we don't want. And I was, as I was walking, I was visualizing sort of a, a circle, sort of like a, almost a sparkly, colorful circle. Like if you picture like one of the Olympic rings, like just one of those, and it was like kind of rainbow and and colorful. And I was picturing having that circle with us as we go through our lives, making the joy choice. And and you're going to get more information about what that is, but I wanted to share that visual with you in case that is helpful to you. And ironically, I came in and I'm on her email list and I came in and I was like, I I feel like that circle might be, have I seen that before? And um, there's not a circle on the top in the cover of her new book, The Joy Choice, but there is um, the letters of the words joy are very colorful and sort of rainbow. So I thought that was kind of interesting and I'm, I'm sure I saw that and it stuck with me. But I think this is going to be potentially a game changer for you. So I can't wait for you to dive in and tune into this conversation. And I I can't wait to hear what you think of it. So let's get started. Do you ever worry that you're wasting your life? I definitely did. In fact, I wrote that in my journal many years ago when I was in the middle of the diet binge roller coaster ride. I woke up every day thinking about food, my body, and what I would eat that day to quote unquote, be healthy. The notebooks I had filled with calories and points could fill up a spare bedroom. Social events and vacations immediately prompted the thought, they will notice I've gained weight, or I need to lose weight by then. Deep down, I knew I wasn't living life the way I wanted to, but I didn't know how to pull myself out of it. If this is you, I want you to imagine what it would feel like to feel empowered in your body and proud of your choices on a consistent basis. I promise you this is possible and it isn't too late. You see, dieting steals our motivation. It makes us ineffective and lose faith in ourselves. It keeps us spinning our wheels in a system that was never built to work. If you're ready to take that first step to motivating yourself with what matters to you, download my Cultivate Powerful Motivation Guide, which is quite beautifully designed if I say so myself, and walk through the simple three steps to cultivate motivation that works for you in 15 minutes or less. You'll get a simple formula to write one sentence at the end that you can use to motivate yourself on a daily basis. You can write this sentence on your bathroom mirror, put it on the background of your phone, or just read it and repeat it in your mind consistently. Look, I know how much it hurts to live a life worrying that you're missing out, not stepping into the person that you were truly meant to be. You can listen to the podcast all day, but taking that first step, putting pen to paper or typing on your phone, is required for true lasting change. It's time to start living, my friend. So it's 100% free. What are you waiting for? Grab your free guide today at drhondorp.com forward slash motivate. That's D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash motivate. 
And before we dive into today's episode, just a reminder that this podcast and corresponding blog are for informational and educational purposes only and should not ever be construed as any form of professional advice. If you are struggling in any of these areas or trying to figure out how this applies to your specific situation, always consult a professional for guidance. All right, let's dive in. All right, so welcome back to the Motivation Made Easy podcast. I have a very, very special guest here today. We have Dr. Michelle Seeger talking about really um, crucial topics, but also it's really exciting because this what we're talking about and so much of Dr. Seeger's work is really what this podcast is about. It's about theories of motivation and how can we build sustainable autonomous changes. So we've got really the expert here to talk to us today. So welcome, welcome, Dr. Seeger. So excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be in conversation with you about this. Me too. So we're going to dive in. We're going to talk about your new incredible book coming out. Um, But before we do that, I'd love if you can just tell us some of your story and how you came to doing this work. Sure. Well, there is a really specific story that got me involved and it it happened in 1994, February. So I I guess um, about 27 years ago, I was getting my first master's degree in kinesiology And I was doing a randomized clinical trial for my master's thesis with my mentor, Vic Hatch. And we were looking to see if exercise could reduce depression and anxiety in cancer survivors. And these these people weren't actively being treated. They were basically four and a half years after their treatment. They were living, busy adults living their normal lives with their families and uh, jobs. And so anyway, we... We're looking to see if exercise among the exercisers um, reduce things. And it did. It significantly reduced these, these issues. But part of our study compared to the group that didn't exercise and part of our study design was to call everyone back about three months after the study ended and do focus groups and uh, collect qualitative data. And I distinctly remember all those years ago, just because it was so foundational for me, the people, the participants sitting around talking about exercise, smiling. And I thought, oh, gee, we didn't just do good research. We did we actually helped people in real life. So I was patting myself on the back and feeling proud and excited, but I was wrong because almost everyone had stopped exercising when our study had ended, you know, three months before. And so I was really curious, why would you stop exercising? You were smiling, talking about it. And they said, Oh, Michelle, do you have all day? I have kids, I have work, I have aging parents, I have this, that, and the other to do. I don't have time to exercise. But the calculus in my brain was, well, you had time to exercise for our study, but you didn't keep exercising for yourself when our study ended. And the thought that came to mind is, wow, If people who faced a life-threatening illness don't feel comfortable prioritizing their own self-care through things like physical activity, then we have a real problem in society. And I literally, a light bulb went off in my brain and I said, this is my problem and I'm going to solve it. And so everything I've done for the past 27 years has been in service of learning both The research from a research perspective, what gets in people's ways from marketing perspectives, from sociology perspectives, anthropology, psychology, public health, but also working with people um, as clients and trying to figure out where is the sweet spot between what we know from research and what really goes down in people's lives. And that's what has informed and that's what drove me to do the work that I do. Yeah, that's awesome. You're doing really this uh, idea of dissemination of research and how and how challenging it is, but like that's where that's where it all is. We don't do just research to do the research and get the publications, but yeah, yeah. How does this map on to people's lives and and yeah, in that moment, really seeing it sounds like sparked a curiosity, but like and then just really committed to to solving that problem or to helping to understand it. And when um, did you 
get interested or, or start looking at like self-determination theory specifically as it be- applied to health behaviors? Was that pretty early on or I'm, I'm That's a, curious? Oh, what an interesting question. Let me think about that. So not in kinesiology. Um, then I went and got a degree in public health and I don't think I don't think I learned about in public health. I actually think it was when I got my PhD, when I was focused on, when I was getting a PhD in personality psychology, which is really the home of motivation from, a, um, well, I guess social psychology too. But uh, I think it was when I was getting my PhD. So in the early 2000s, probably soon after, there was a really, um, as you probably know, a really foundational paper that was, pu- our journal um, that was published um, it was all about positive psychology and they had single, it was 2000, probably American psychology, if I'm thinking correctly. And they had very short summary articles of just the leading edge theories related to positive psychology in some way. And, and I think that I don't remember that the exact time, but that was very influential. Yeah, it seems like it. And certainly from that's actually, I think I had the theory had been discussed very briefly to me because I have sort of in my training, I believe I was on postdoc and I was like, you know, I kind of think the way we're doing this weight loss thing, behavioral weight loss, like I just, I kind of think we're missing a lot of things. And and that's yes. what this podcast is about is like, it was my personal and professional journey sort of coming together and saying like, yeah, like I'm not, this isn't really mapping on to, to human experience. And someone, a mentor of mine had said, well, look into this theory that kind of is, and, and now it's sort of a, a light post guiding, guiding yes. theory for me of like, how does this map back onto autonomous motivation? And I think soon after I found your book, I'm like, oh, someone's doing this work. And, mm-hmm. and so, um, yeah, I was curious. When it's a foundational your- theory. It's so important. And I'm shocked by how many people haven't heard of it. Same. Yeah. Especially once you find it. And I think just to this day, and it sounds like both of us had a little bit of, I mean, it wasn't like immediately told to us in, in these different fields. And I think in, in many fields, it's very relevant. So I, I hope over time, maybe we'll we'll start to talk about it sooner because it's been studied cross culturally cross like most behaviors. And so. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I think it is disseminating. It's just, it's a little more complicated than the most popular theories that have been disseminated because for their simplicity, really, but mm-hmm. sim- simplicity doesn't get complex change to stick. So that's yeah. why, you know, I think, but you and I are such geeks loving talking about theories, right? Aren't we? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I'm good with it. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. It's Me fine. too. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear. So like I said, when I found your book, No Sweat, I was really excited because you, um, for the listeners, you're talking really about like, a, a, a. I don't know if it was just, I, I mean, it's been a bit since I've read the book. So I, I don't know that you just talk about self-determination theory, but I think that was pretty foundational in some of the ways you're talking about. We got to shift our view of exercise. And I know a lot of what you said in that book, I had never heard in the field of this idea of like, you know, what counts for exercise and these arbitrary ideas that we were told. And I was telling people in weight loss um, groups, like at least 10 minute bouts and make sure you're really breathing hard and sweating. So I I remembered that very clearly. Um, I'm curious what made you decide to write um, that book for, for folks? Well, um, it's interesting because your first question was really focused on how I got started. And that and so the book is kind of the reverse. It's what have I learned over the last 20 years? It was published in 2015. So it's, it's really been quite a while. And that book reflected both the research that I had done as well as this research of others, but also all this health coaching that I had been doing. Mm-hmm. And I just decided, gosh, I need to get this out into the world. I need other people to understand what I believe is important to getting to changing our whole world when it comes to physical activity. Um, And so, you know, it's funny that you pointed that out because that was, that was the single thing I was really kind of nervous about publishing because um, it really, it didn't align with the, uh, 
quote unquote policies and rules, if you will, that everyone was stating. So I felt like I was putting myself on the line by, in a way, disagreeing what the standards of practice were. But I um, I, I felt like there's enough science around in other areas that justified. And to tell you the truth, I, you know, I, I got, I asked really high level people who I thought they're either going to disagree with me and push back or, or, and not say, I can't, I can't endorse your book because of this, um, or they're going to agree with me. And I was just shocked that, Everyone who I asked, these leaders in the field internationally were on board and said, you couldn't be more right about this. So I like gave a huge sigh of relief. And now, of course, the new recommendations all say what I said back in 2015, which is everything counts. Choose to move at any opportunity you have. That's incredible. And, and it's interesting, too, I think, to just reflect on this notion of I think professionally, this idea of like belonging and like not wanting to like rock the boat and not wanting to, um, I had a lot of fears having this podcast talking about some of my personal experiences and how that would be viewed as a professional. And, um, and many of those fears don't end up really being very founded. I mean, certainly there could be people judging me that haven't told me about it and that's okay. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, I think, and yet like so much good comes out of taking these risks. And so it's cool to, to hear you say that there was some fear there, which I think makes a lot of sense, but I, ne- I wouldn't necessarily have guessed that. So I appreciate you sharing that. Sure. No, there's a lot of fear. So <laughs> good to know <laughs> you're, you're human, like the rest of us. Yes. <laughs> um, and so let's, uh, let's talk about your new book, the joy choice, because first of all, that's an incredible title. Um, why did you choose to, to write this book? And um, can you just tell us a little bit about what it's bringing to the world? Sure. Well, thank you. I'm so excited about it. Um, wow. Uh, I didn't know that I had another book in me. I didn't, you know, I wasn't one of these people who said I have to get a new book out every couple of years. Keep, uh-huh. you know, no, I was like, I had something to say. I had to teach people what I had learned, you know, over 20 years, but it just came tapping on my shoulder and, um, and it, it, it was a very different type of experience because what I decided to do was tackle an issue that I was not doing the research on. And so I was a learner and a student as I was, as I was writing the book. So here's where, here's the logic, um, Sustainable change is what everyone wants in healthy eating and exercise and other self-care behaviors. That is the holy grail that the whole world is trying to solve. But sustainable behavior change is the result of what we really need to be putting our attention on. And that is the consistent decisions that create the single steps that constitute a sustainable behavior change path. So, okay, now we know we've got to focus on how do we create consistent decisions? Well, there's a couple ways to do that. I would say two main ways. One is unconscious and one is conscious. So one of the most popular things right now is habit formation. Um, Lots of best-selling books about habit formation. I hear everyone talking about habit formation. Most apps are developed out of a habit formation algorithm. Um, and so that is what is cons- what has been touted as the holy grail, because let's make our choices unconscious. Let's not tap into our cognition and drain it because we have so many things to think about. So let's put our exercise on automatic pilot. Mm-hmm. While that sure does sound good in theory, But the problem is there's all these assumptions underlying habit formation that actually most people can't meet when it comes to complex behaviors like healthy eating and exercise. So if habit formation isn't the solution, what is? Well, I propose that the it's the exact opposite. If most of us, because our lives are too complicated and unpredictable, or we don't have the self-discipline, the innate self-discipline that tends to be associated with um, 
the ability to form habits, or if we have some type of inner conflict around eating in healthier ways or, or exercising, the, all those things are absolutely going to flatten our ability to form automatic habits. So if that's the case, what do we do? Well, we need our conscious our consciousness and our mental prowess. And if we learn how to think about it in really strategic ways, we can cultivate um, this mental prowess, which reflects our um, executive functioning. And that's kind of a lot of people say, oh, Michelle, that's such a terrible word. And it is a <laughs> terrible word, but it reflects this part of our brain that that is in charge of managing our long-term goals and helping us make the most strategic decisions in the moment. I'm going to pause just to see if you have any questions before I go on. Well, I I think that, yeah, I think what you're saying is so important. And I think what you you do in this book, I, I've, I mentioned to you, I, I'd hope to read the entire book by the time that we met, but sick kiddos and lack of childcare prevented that, but I read a good portion. And I think what you do so well is um, help to explain that like for people that um, I did have a, a question about like atomic habits or like these kind of books that like people are talking about small, consistent or tiny habits, I think is another one, right? Um, if people are like looking at these things and trying to apply them and finding it's not working for them in the way that they want, like they shouldn't feel shame or feel bad about that. Is It's that sometimes, at least in the way people apply those books or those apps, it's missing these nuances and in that, um, and the, I think that's a really important, it's not just automatize, make the habit happen, but it's these decision processes and how we relate to our complex emotions and thoughts around it. Is that right? Like, am I capturing yes. that right? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the books serve an important purpose because they get us, they really get us to appreciate how important tiny choices and behaviors are to create sustainability. The problem is, is that the way, um, many, uh, many, uh, it, the way that habits are prescribed is, um, and, and it's very simple and it, it makes it sounds very easy. And the habit formation cycle is simple and easy. That's, that's the part of it. It is, there is the cycle and it works really well for things like flossing, um, which doesn't happen in the middle of our ah, crazy, busy life. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so yeah. and it, interestingly, you know, that the emerging thinking in the scientific literature on habit formation is addressing this very issue. And there's this wonderful nuanced conversation going on with with people kind of arguing about, like, can we even actually form habits for complex behaviors? You know, or, or do we need to think about a different term or can we think about habit formation in a very different way that actually is much more complex and nuanced or other phases of it. So the way that we've been taught about habit formation through, you know, trigger behavior reward is really, it doesn't, the, the thinking, the current thinking, and, and this is what I talk about in the book is that it just, doesn't apply to more complex behaviors unless you are a certain person. And my husband happens to be that person, by the way. So I, I live with what I call a habiter and I'm an unhabiter. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did want to ask the, you about that, yeah. that distinction. Cause I thought that was really interesting. Um, we, I don't think, I don't know if we know the answer to this, but like, it seems like habiters, these are the people that more easily adopt these like consistent habits versus on, it seems like they're kind of a rare breed. Is that fair to say? I believe, I believe so. I believe yeah. so. I, I think, you know, it's a, it's a habiter is someone, and I use my husband's example just because I know it. So, well, I mean, he, regardless of what time he goes to sleep at night, he has an exercise habit and it's like so important to him and, but it's automated. His alarm rings, he sleeps in his exercise clothes. And I've heard other people who do this too. And that's the way you 
you make things frictionless, right? So you don't think you just get, he gets up, goes downstairs, gets on his exercise bike. He doesn't have to drive to a gym. He goes into our basement, which is where he set up his gym. Mm -hmm. And, but guess what? He, everything he does in life, he has a lot of discipline about. He also is his own boss. So he doesn't have other people. He's a, he's a, you know, in academia and he's at the top of his game and sure there's leadership in the university, but at that type of job, you're really in charge. You have full autonomy to a great extent over your life. So you don't have other people doing things. And, um, you know, uh, so he's very disciplined in his research and in all areas. And I think that is one of the characteristics of what I've termed a habiter is someone who's really pretty disciplined across areas of life. And they have a pretty predictable life routinized. Um, and so, yeah. And if you are someone who, you know, you mentioned sick kids, you know, and you're, No child care. Gosh, you couldn't read the book. You probably a lot of other things you can do. That type of life context does not lend itself to forming habits. But I, you know, I talk about that in detail and it's, it's, there's a lot, it's very logistical to some extent, but like you mentioned earlier, the internal conflict and around the emotional meanings around eating and exercise, which is also connected to body shame and consciousness and failing and feeling or feeling like failures, which of course we shouldn't feel because we have been given a formula for changing our behavior that sets most of us up to fail. So how can Mm -hmm. we be failing at something if we've been set up to fail? Right, right. No, I I found the book very validating of my experience, especially last week, but really like my experience most days with two kids, it's just, you know, there's a lot of moving parts and, um, even actually becoming an entrepreneur just over a year ago, I really had very high hopes for having a really excellent exercise routine and it is still not happened and it's, I'm working on it and I got some things, set up. But um, yeah, I think that that's one of the things that your book does well is it, it's like removing some of the the shame. And I think for particularly for people in larger bodies, they've been told over and over more than perhaps someone in a smaller body that this is your fault, that you can't do this. And therefore, like they bring, I think that's the other thing that I think you make clear is like, they are going to, we all bring our unique sets of experiences, emotions to each decision process. And I think your book it helps to acknowledge that in a way that hasn't been as explicitly done, at least in some of like the more popular press habit books that, that I've read. And to be clear, I like Atomic Habits. I think what he talks about with like setting up systems and processes, there's a lot of good there. So by no yes, means am I, I actually absolutely. think it has, he does a really good job. There's a reason why that book is so popular, but I think sometimes because of the things you were mentioning, the weight loss, body shame components it can very much, I think shame and body shame undermines a lot of what's going on with what, with any healthy habit change for, for people at all body sizes, honestly, but I do think it's um, amplified for someone who's been told you're bad, unhealthy, it's your fault that you um, have this body size. And so, yeah. And I, I wonder if you can touch on really quick, like you touch on the fact that like a lot of the research on habit formation has been done in certain populations like college students. And, and that's not applying. That's not necessarily going to apply beyond that. That I thought that was a really interesting point. Well, I mean, think about it. Think about what we carry, those of us who work and have children, you know, and let's throw in a partner, let's throw in a pet that might throw up a lot. Let's throw in, um, <laughs> aging parents locally or maybe somewhere else or both that need help assistance, understanding issues with healthcare, understanding computer channel. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? Of the things Mm -hmm. that your, your average Joe or Jane juggles on a daily basis. 
And if you're, if you're trying to study sustainable behavior change in a population that not to belittle, look, I was a student. I know how hard it is to be a student and going to class and getting to class and doing homework and taking tests. I mean, and participating in extracurricular activities. It's not like there aren't things to do. And it's also not like there aren't full-time students or part-time students who are juggling all the other things. But in general, the average student, which I talk just a little bit about in the book, you know, is of a certain age before they're, um, while they're still single and don't necessarily have families and don't necessarily have jobs. And And a student life in general, again, everything is in general, there's always exceptions to this rule, have, has a ton of flexibility. So how can we in any way, shape or form generalize about any type of behavioral strategy or tactic in a student population to people who are not students? And so, I mean, that's true really of any type of research question, but I think it's especially true of research that aims to be about sustaining healthy lifestyles. Mm-hmm. within the ebbs and flows and hit or misses of our lives. Yes, absolutely. And I think um, you can tell me if this is right, but I, I think what you were saying that's so crucial to understand before we talk about like, what do we do instead is this idea yes. of like habits um, vary in terms of their complexity and eating habits is one of the most complex ones, right? We got like flossing on the low end. Yes. We have... Um, even exercise is probably somewhere in the middle where there can be definitely a lot of complexities there. But if you're aiming to exercise three to five times a week, it's three to five decisions a week versus a week of eating. That's a lot of decision points. And I think you make that point really well. And that's something that is sometimes maybe either glossed over or at least like I think there's a lot of people that are like, I did this, you do it too, right? Like, yes. um, here's how I did it. And, and that may or may not apply for a variety of, of reasons. So, yeah, I mean, and then the question is what, what, you know, what is the alternative, right? Mm-hmm. And how mm-hmm. do we think about things if, if we can't depend on, autom- uh, <laughs> if we can't um, depend on automatic pilot, um, then, then what do we do? Well, it's not that planning isn't important because it is important. You know, um, I was recently talking to a coaching client and, you know, it was very clear that one of the reasons that he was challenged with this food goal that he had this, um, and it was a very, it was a very specific thing because I do believe we need to focus on very specific, small changes at a time. And that would align very well with, you know, the, doing the tiny habits and atomic habits. I mean, small is the way to go. There is absolutely no doubt about that. And planning, and this person wasn't planning. And so to to the the, doing the necessary prep. So planning is also important, but then what happens when we bump up against challenges? And that's, that is this beautiful, messy space that we really haven't been taught to think about in a, in a, in a really interesting way. It's like, oh, gee, I, I have a problem or I can't do it, or there's a challenge or let's create an if then plan. And that is actually what I talked about in no sweat, but my thinking has evolved since then. Um, what the joy choice is about is that problem space, because if we have our healthy eating plan that we hope and intend to do, or we've got our exercise plan that we hope and intend to do, but like you said, life never stops sending curveballs. So, oh no, I was going to leave in 10 minutes to do this, but I have this call that's 20 minutes and I'm, I only have 15 minutes instead of the 45 that I was hoping for, for either my, my walk or my run or whatever it is. And And what typically happens is we bump up against the way we've been taught to think about it, which is, well, it's not worth it doing. I was going to do 40 minutes. Why? why, I'm not going to do 15 minutes. That's Mm -hmm. it's not worth it. And that all or nothing thinking is is what I call the the culprit that derails us. It, It throws us off the path. And so what we need to do is rethink that whole scenario. And the joy choice 
is defined as the perfect imperfect option when we come up against an unexpected challenge to our healthy eating or exercise plan. And you know, what a wonderful way to think about it. Yeah. It's the perfect, imperfect option. We can't mm -hmm. do what we hope we can't do perfect. And, and if we can think about it as a way that it will let us stay in sync just a little bit with what we want to do to take care of ourselves. And when we stay in sync with ourselves, just that little bit, it lets us that much more stay in sync with everything else we care most about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And it makes me think of in terms of like examples of this, right. Um, in your book, you talk about an example of Kara and how Kara noticed that she was meal skipping. And that's a common one that's, you know, people meal skip, they're busy and then they, they eat more than they want to later in the day. And I believe with her, she had sort of like a plan to make like sit down and have her lunch. And then I don't know who was it taxes. I think she was a business owner. And so um, in that moment, and I love that the language you use is just so, so fun, right? So this idea of you say, simplify, play and choose joy. And, and, and in fact, then you go on to say, I have this quoted because I, I think it's important to say that will help us quiet the mental noise, clear the decks for effective decision-making through joy, ease, and flexibility. What lovely words, right? Thank you. <laughs> but, but yeah, and, and in that moment, she was able to say like, I'm not going to sit down. And I think she was going to do a grilled cheese and a salad or something, but I think she forget what her ended up perfect and perfect option was, but instead of skipping her lunch entirely, she <sighs> took what a couple minutes whipped up. Oh, maybe it was leftovers, but yeah. If we and can she, kind of make she, that tangible. she stood up. She didn't sit down. She, you know, she decided, yeah, okay, yeah. I, what can I do here? I, you know, I could just, I'm really busy. I don't have the time to do what I hope to do, but she's like, wait, let me think about this. And, you know, um, it's once we start giving yourself permission to play with the options it really does convert it into something that can actually be fun. Like you're saying, I mean, that's the other thing we tend to think about behavior change at, you know, is this high stakes. I've got to do it this way because of that very important thing. But what if we thought about it in more playful terms and, and in the way that we, in the bits and pieces way that we think about every other area of our life, you know, like jumping on a call for two minutes to say hi to my husband or calling my mom for seven minutes to see if I can help out. And, you know, just these different things, but we haven't been taught to think about slicing and dicing mm -hmm. our strategies in the same way. And that's really what I hope the book brings to the world as this permission to slice and dice our healthy um, um, choices and opportunities, but also to enjoy doing it and to give ourselves a huge pat on the back when we do anything, um, mm -hmm. even if it's even just noticing, gosh, darn it, I meant to slice and dice and I forgot. And just recognizing, because awareness is with anything. Awareness is key to this. It's interesting. It's the opposite of habit formation. It's mm -hmm. awareness, honed awareness about what we need, what we may be doing or not doing, experimenting and trying, um, and then course correcting as we go. Yeah. I'm thinking too, as you're talking, like it, it becomes so, so a lot of times I work with people one-on-one -on -one or in the program with these really painful emotions around these topics, right? Like we, there's just, it's when you've, let's say someone's perceived messed up, they intended to have a salad and a sandwich for lunch and someone brought pizza and they had a piece of pizza and when eating that pizza, they kind of are flooded with like old thinking patterns, which is all or nothing thinking I'm bad. I'm the worst. Right. But I think what you're saying is like, let's open up some space, breathe, maybe if they're really intense emotion, but like, let's open up some space for the complexities and of what it means to be a human living in a body in this world. And, and so many yes. of the people, like, like I said, in, in our community have, and, and many people in the world have like long history of chronic dieting. There's a lot of, there's a lot of emotions there that come to each choice. And can we sort of like make space for that simplify, 
but but also know like we it doesn't always have to be treacherous and hard and yes. I mean there's pain there but like yes. can we lighten it up a little bit and say choosing joy for you in that moment and figuring out what that is and that's you know certainly not an easy thing but it can be incredibly empowering when you're reminding yourself like I'm in the driver's seat am I capturing kind of what some of the intentions you have yes but and I think you know something that we talked about and I actually have a quiz on my website to help people identify what you know, these hidden currents are that tend to derail us without us realizing it. And so once you become aware of them, which, which um, I really describe fully, like you're talking about in the book, you can name it. And, you know, the neuroscience, the, the research um, on the brain um, shows that, and this is not my area of research, but, you know, other neuroscientists who I talk about in the book, you know, Dan Siegel says, name it to tame it. The very act of naming what we're feeling or noticing at this point of choice, the negative, I'm a failure, I'm, I weigh too much, I've never been successful before, why would I think whatever it is are other people's needs, I can't, I have to order cake with everyone else because otherwise what am I going to look like or I'm going to burst everyone, whatever it is, um, they influence our choices. But if we can name them, oh, there's that, we actually take us out of the amygdala, the stressful place where those things often control us. And, and it gives us a little bit of cognitive, you know, bandwidth and control consciousness to say, okay, yeah. Hey, there you go. I notice you, but you are not helping me right now. So I'm just going to say hello and move on. And, and that is built into the decision tool that I teach the, you know, the pop decision tool that I teach so that people are given an opportunity to name it. And then they can move on to the productive, positive, playful part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Who doesn't want to feel more playful with some of these things? Cause they can feel so heavy. And it's like giving an option to shift the thinking, maybe make space for a new shift. So yeah, I think that's, that's awesome. And are there, is there anything else? We have like some questions that we ask all of our guests that I'll go to in a moment. Uh, And I also will tell people where they can find you. Okay. Is there anything else you want people to know um, obviously they need to go, but get the book and get more in depth about these decision tools, but is there anything else you want people to know, um, as they approach making healthier habit changes or healthy, healthier eating decisions? I, you know, first and foremost, we've talked about this a lot because I think it needs to be said a lot. It is not your fault. If someone, if a listener's listening and has felt shame or failure, it is not your fault. The, the traditional approach to helping um, people change their healthy behaviors, like uh, being more active and eating in, in healthier ways, literally has, has been based on a system of thought and thinking that it actually that goes against um, how we live our lives. And, it, and you know, I, I, I think it's important to say again, that there are different techniques out there that are going to work differently for different people. And, you know, habit formation is going to work for some people. Um, So we need to keep that in mind too. Um, But I do want people to know that their own experiences, while they may be painful in some cases, is actually what is going to help set them free. Because when they can recognize that, it is, it will stop Um, the the unconscious force of those memories from taking over and, you know, uh, and turning the switch away from what they actually really want to be making. So um, I think it's a very exciting time. um, and And it's a time that will let people take charge in a way that respects and honors their pain. And if we try to ignore it, It will not go. We know that, right? We can't ignore these experiences. So we need to name them Mm -hmm. and move on and get help with them when we need to, too. That's an important thing. Some people do need extra help with that. And that's important to acknowledge. And and I know you do work um, with people on that, too. Yeah, that's one of the reasons we have our community is like, I think, 
community can just accelerate change. And, and of course, one-on-one help. There's lots of ways to get support. Yes. But it's all um, very, uh, very helpful often to get it out of our head and, and to share with someone else. But you can also get it out of your head, read the book, put it on paper. That can be a wonderful first step. So I love that. It'll set you free. Um, so yeah, we'll move on to our motivation questions that, um, it, that we ask everyone. So one, the first one is, um, what is one thing you have truly intrinsic motivation for? Um, so you know what intrinsic motivation is, obviously, yeah. but uh, you do it for the inherent satisfaction from the behavior itself. Sure. That's a great question. Um, well, gosh, lots of things, you know, talking to you, I have an intrinsic motivation for doing my work. I have an intrinsic motivation for, um, you know, cooking, uh, uh, food that is delicious. I have intrinsic motive playing with my dog, you know, so hanging out with my family and playing ping pong with my son. I mean, the list goes on and on. And I think, you know, that points to a really important thing, which is that we need to know the things that we're intrinsically motivated for and the things that we're not intrinsically motivated for, but that we somehow want to make happen consistently. And, but that's our, our clue, like, okay, I don't feel intrinsically motivated for this. Why? And that is the window into that, right? Mm -hmm. What's getting in the way. So yeah. And this is our next question is somewhat related. So our integrated motivation question, right? So from a should to a choose to, um, what's an example of a behavior that used to be a should for you used to be more externally driven, but you found a way to do it more consistently because it's, you know, either consistent with your values, um, or maybe you, you ended up enjoying it, but maybe you, you do it even if you don't always love it. That, so for me, the first thing that comes to mind is meditation and it's it meditation is something that I've been studying since probably mid eighties. Um, so I've spent a lot of time reading. I haven't done a ton of retreats, but I believe the research about it. I believe the value it has. Um, and the way I shifted is that first I set really small goals. And again, it's again, it speaks to the importance of having small goals. My mm-hmm. goal used to be, you know, two to five minutes um, after, um, I made tea, but I've started doing it for 12 minutes on most days. And when I can't do it, and sometimes it's a few days in a row, I don't shoot on myself. I don't feel like a failure. I'm like, oh, well, like I had other priorities today, but you know, tomorrow I'm going to get back to it. And, um, I don't know that I feel quote unquote, the types of experiences that lend themselves to be intrinsically motivating, but it just, I feel really good that I'm doing it because I believe that I'm doing good things for my brain. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel proud of myself that I figured out on a fairly consistent basis how to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. And sometimes I do do it. I set my alarm for three minutes. Sometimes I do do that. Um, So that's so starting small gradually building up over time, but also not having an all or nothing approach and letting yes. yourself take it back to small if need be, like having that flexibility, you're using the the joy to, choice of it. That's for exactly right. Yeah. And I've been challenging myself to do the joy choice because I've been socialized in the same culture everyone else has. And, you know, I have an ideal walk that takes 60 minutes and I haven't been able to do it recently. And, you know, a couple of days ago, I took, uh, whatever, about a 20 minute walk. And I almost didn't be, you know, for the same reasons that we almost always don't do it. It's like, eh, it's not really what I want to do or what I, you know, what my plan is, but I'm like, no, it's my joy choice and it's going to keep me consistent. And so I'm, I'm learning to make joy choices in the same way that I'm encouraging my clients and my readers to do. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Um, Our final question before we tell people where they can connect with you is the question about courage and connection. So a big part of our mission here on this podcast and sort of in the psychology of wellness is, um, you know, teaching people to reclaim trust with their bodies so they can live more courageous and connected lives, whatever that means for them. Can you share any examples for you of where you've kind of lived courageously or built connection in a way that you're proud of? you know, I think living courageously, you know, I have similar to my first book, 
I'm nervous about the second book. You know, I'm critically evaluating some things that people um, just kind of take as as standard and and as true. And so I'm nervous about that. You know, how are people going to respond to that? Is it going to offend people? I don't want to offend people. I just want us to be very, I want us to be smarter consumers of uh, what we might take for granted. So I'm nervous about that. Um, so I feel, and I guess in a way that it's a little courageous, um, mm-hmm. but so absolutely. Um, and in terms of connection, it's, it is so clear to me how important connection is to happiness um, earlier in my, and to sustainability early in my career, I wasn't really interested in connection as an important thing in behavior change. But over the years through my research and my research showing that connection is really important. And then having me contemplate like, why is connection so important? It's because it's among the most motivating things in human nature. Um, So I'm, paying attention to the ways in which I stay connected. And when I, you know, am too busy with things and I notice that I'm not connecting with friends, for example, in my neighborhood that lives so close to me, mm-hmm. I, I try to level set and go, okay, let's, let's start over and go back to what's really important and reach out and take a walk, you know, or get together. Yeah. 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 Well- always been important, but perhaps never as important as it is right now, just with everything going on in the world and how disconnected and polarized we are, but also it's just challenging to connect (laughs) logistically. It's getting a little bit better, but yeah. And and when you can connect outside with people and a walk is a perfect way, right? In the winter months in Michigan, you you just have to have really good mittens and hats and, you know, boots, Uh, but being outside and walking is such a wonderful way to connect. And we haven't been taught to think about it like that. Right. Yes. I am with you on that. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much. Tell people where they can learn more about the, the book and the work you're doing. You already mentioned the quiz. It sounds like that's on your website and we will link to your website. Is the website the best place to, to find all of this wonderful information? Okay. Yeah. So michelleseeger.com and Mm -hmm. it's a free quiz to help people identify these hidden forces that we've been talking about so that they can name it. Cause if you can't name it, the force, you know, is invisible. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, no. And and in terms of the book too, there's more information. So I, my goal is that people, I dedicated the book to everyone who struggled with these issues because I feel like, They've been sold, uh, 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 you know, a, a Brooklyn bridge that keeps falling down and it's not, it's not their fault. And I want to help people understand that and give them strategies that will help them not just be successful on their behavior change journey, but feel really good about themselves doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think it's a gift because especially because I do think like in the work that I've been doing and observing, there's a lot of people talking about like different approaches to not so weight centered and all of that. And that's kind of what we talk about in this podcast, but you're really bringing the theory and the research um, in a very important way. And my hope is that just like your last book, it'll bridge the gap and we'll see some shifts in like recommendations um, because it's more evidence-based, right? Like I think that it's more effective to think about these ways in, in a way that becomes sustainable. So thank you for being here today. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for having me. And it's great to see you. If you're anything like me, you may at times really feel like there's so much pain in the world that it's pretty overwhelming. And even though I do my best to avoid the news, it's hard to avoid feeling helpless at times that you can't do anything to make positive change. 
Well, I'm here to tell you that there's one positive change that I've made in terms of where I buy my books, and I'd invite you to do the same. Bookshop is a website that supports local bookstores near you, as well as affiliates that work with them. So if you buy through the Bookshop link, you're going to be supporting local bookstores near you in the U.S. and Canada, and you're going to be supporting my blog and podcast. It's kind of like a tip jar. Did you know that if nothing slows their momentum, Amazon will have about 80% of the book market by the end of 2025? Look, I have Amazon Prime. I love the convenience, but this is a super cool way that you can do something positive with where you buy your books and support some really positive causes. Make sure you check it out. You can find all of my favorite books about health and wellness, but also about topics like courage, vulnerability, and even some of my favorite fiction and kids books for the times when you just need some fun, downtime, or some meaningful stories. My recent favorite is related to improving the quality of our lives and the way we use technology, and really doing so from a value-based place. No pressure. It's not going to tell you that technology is bad. It's just going to help you to evaluate for you where the pros outweigh the cons and where they don't. So if you believe in supporting local, controlling the things that you can, please consider buying your books through Bookshop and through the Psychology of Wellness link. You can find that in the show notes, or you can go to drshawnhondorp.com. That's D-R-S-H-A-W-N-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash bookshop. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard, and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.